0: Holy shit, Joe Kennedy. Wow, Dave Gebro. We are the hosts of Discovery Graffiti, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth. About the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. All right, so here we are, back again, back in the studio, cutting some episodes, cutting
1: apps. <laughs> this one was uh, particularly entertaining. You know, I'm I'm kind of feel like I've been doing enough of these now, where I'm kind of getting my groove on going with the. Uh, I'm not used to doing this kind of uh, this kind of intent uh, scheduled listening. <laughs>
0: I'm used to kind of just it's throwing ind- music it, on whenever it, it becomes, I feel like listening to music. It becomes intense, you know. We're starting to book guests, and now we have deadlines yeah. to listen to music. Yeah, and this is, you know, that was the before times how I listen to music. I guess, I guess those days those are just days are over, over forever. Yeah, yeah. So, and but you know, with these guys, uh, with the with this artist we're doing tonight, uh, you know, I knew the whole discography. Not many people do. Uh, yeah, a lot, of these a, were,
1: a lot of these were new on me. And I'm a big fan myself, but um, a lot of these were new on me as well. A lot
0: of them sit in a dark corner of his catalog that's not typically recognized. But this uh, is kind
1: of one that's sort of, this this one was, uh, as a listening experience, this was mostly kind of uh, sugar going down, because the even the,
0: the, the records that aren't as strong are uh, still kind of an interesting listen. The good thing about the artists we're doing tonight is that uh, the discography itself tells a very explicit story story from beginning to end you really have a tale uh there's a lot of takeaways from the tale and um you know, often you do. I mean, you look at a song or an album that's really a snapshot in time and space, you look at an entire career and it's going to tell you a story and it's typically going to be very interesting regardless of the music. This one also, um, you know, it's uh,
1: how much side eye do you get from your family when you're when you're deep into some really obscure like album that nobody could ever care about? Uh,
0: you know, honestly, even if it's something that somebody could care about, the fact that it's so insistent and endless... <laughs> Um, is a, it's a harbinger of side eye at all times? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I live.
1: I, I live kind of in a chronic state of side eye anyway. Yeah, just yeah, not just in life from all people I interact
0: with. The terrible thing is, I either get side eye or if I'm in front of them, I get stink eye.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stink eye is just side eye without the just side eye the in side. front. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, should we get into the episode? Probably. Today, we will be in the train yards, hitting up the cars with the spray paint on the career of Sly Stone. Sly in the the Family. family. Sly in the Family Stone. But also Sly. And also occasionally Sly Stone.
0: It became interchangeable, but let's... I got to say, Joe, right off the bat, please, because it's the only way I'm going to be able to get rid of this nagging feeling. I'm nervous tonight. And by tonight, I mean this afternoon, because... <clears throat> this is a big mountain to climb.
1: It's a high stakes episode. It really is. There's so much music and insanity and uh, and uh, storytelling. And- it's
0: one of the great tales in rock slash funk history, Sly and the Family Stone. So what we do is uh, we are the only podcast that goes through an entire discography of an artist. And that includes not just albums, but extended plays. If they're, uh, you know, turning point singles, just... Everything that an artist has released to get an overview of exactly what in the fuck is going on with that artist or band.
1: And I should note, we're not doing it from memory. We are, Even though we are familiar with a lot of these artists' work, we are uh, listening again with fresh ears to everything they ever did from the beginning to the end of their careers. Our
0: families have become strangers to
1: us. And um, I have no room for any other music other than the things that we listen
0: to. In this no show. room for any other things, period. So you're welcome. <laughs> yes, exactly. We do the hard the hard curating so you don't have to. Definitely follow along with us on Discograffiti.com uh, to get a very finely curated playlist of everything that we're going through. Uh, to get a sense of an artist's full career and arc of their work. But this will be everything you got to know about Sly and the Family Stone.
1: We're going we're doing the whole start to finish and S- for every artist that we do on the show.
0: Sylvester Stewart was born on March 15th, 1943 in Denton, Texas and then raised in Vallejo in the Bay Area. Dude was a prodigy at an early age and mastered tons of instruments, right Joe, just like you. Uh except he was more on the gospel end of things with uh Freddie and Rose, his well, brother you know, and sister.
1: I you know, I do my thing, but Sly is a you know kind of Mozart level talent. You know, he's kinda of like you know, he's in the upper like stratosphere of raw musical talent with people like, you know, like Brian Wilson or Prince or you know, there are like four or five artists who are kind of the all, the pillars of
0: funk music. But, but then he also, to me, when I think of him he totally embodied the schism and the dichotomy of the 60s. Yeah, because, sure. Well,
1: there's that too with him. He's you actually- know,
0: freedom sl- slash hedonism. There, I mean,
1: I, and I think there's another layer to Sly's music is in, in that it's uh, very honest and personal. I but think he's
0: also a, hiding inside of it. There's, yeah. There's places you can o- almost see him dart around. He's telling you the truth, then mm. he's turning around like Eminem but it's almost.
1: not really, it's not just party music. It, there is no. some party music in there, um, but um, the, I, he's, a very, he's a pretty sophisticated lyricist. And I think underrated in that regard, really. Definitely. And, um, you know, those songs kind of have an extra layer of meaning on both ends of the spectrum. They're really kind of like optimistic you know, uh rainbow coalition kind of tunes. And then the,
0: they fucking go South so quick. And that's part of the, appeal. But, and, and the
1: but then both those things are kind of equally sincere. Yeah, you know? so,
0: absolutely. He's always honest. Contains so, multitudes. So anyway, the most important thing to know about the early life of the Stewart family is that they were a very deeply religious, uh, middle-class clan. So the part of the belief system of what they subscribe to the church of God in Christ, um, their, their parents, Casey and Alpha, they encourage their kids to e- express themselves musically um, through the church. And go ahead, Joe. So,
1: yeah, his brothers and sisters are well. Freddie and uh, and, Rose. and Rose are are pretty badass in their own right. I mean, Freddie's phenomenal guitar player and singer. Um, you know it. it he, as a, he's, I guess, he's sort of the Carl Wilson
0: of the, yeah, <laughs> Sly yeah. the family. Yeah, that's
1: stone. A, t- a totally fair comparison. Um, a fine, fine musician in his own right, and, and same with Rose, they're really like
0: you know, so, big so, personalities. So, they too. they became, um, along with uh Loretta, their sister, they formed a group called the Stewart Four as kids, and they performed gospel music and in, in the church and recorded one of those you know, gall darn 78 RPM singles in 1952 on the battlefield, backed with walking in Jesus' name. Um, that was the very, very first release. Uh, not much of a, a big release, but what happened was, this is something that becomes intrinsic to the Sly story. Um, Sylvester got the nickname Sly in grade school when a classmate uh, just misspelled his name, Sly Vester. And then since that moment... The nickname stuck, but actually wound up kind of creating this weird schism uh, to his personality throughout his entire life.
1: Somehow um Sylvester Stallone also got Sly as a nickname. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was going to misspelling for, like it, it it created a whole new genre of instant street cred. nicknames. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, you know, Sylvester was the honest true him and Sly was like the, the devil on his shoulder. I and mean, this was something that uh, I would say, and very fairly, haunted him throughout his career.
1: Uh, yeah, he didn't really oscillate between the two. He was kind of the one and then, like, very much just the other. <laughs> and
0: like, then only the other, except for, like... And then really the other. And then, yeah, exactly. He joined a bunch of different high school bands, and one of them was a group called the Viscanes. So this was what I consider to be his first real group. It was a doo group that featured his friend... Frank Arellano, a guy who was a Filipino, and the two of them were the only non-white performers. But the integrated group, however, you know, semi-integrated they were, made the Viscaynes quote-unquote hip to the audience. And so they'd later inspire Sly's idea, the cross-cultural, you know, multiracial family stone thing. And uh, they're kind of, they're
1: pretty good. It's kind of standard issue doo-wop, but it kind of has some, it has some, uh, it has some grease to
0: it. And I like he, it. he
1: sings great on it. So um, I
0: think it's, it's quality for sure for what it is. So we're talking 1961 to 62. Sly is not even singing or let's say he's, he doesn't have the lead on a lot of stuff, but right. even that stuff is good. Yeah. Um, it sounds almost
1: kind of like this the particular brand of uh Duop that Zappa was really into.
0: That's true. It's a little Reuben and the Jetsy. Yeah. Um but it's good it's it's you know it's serviceable period Duop Shamalem is what, mm. is what it, I've somehow reduced it to for whatever reason. Yeah, I liked it. Um it's you know not necessarily super exceptional but at, at this point Sly's only getting his feet wet and uh it's definitely better than I feel it has any right to be, seeing as uh this this could have been you know of historical interest only. I would give it three stars um, I didn't star this one, but okay, three stars <laughs> right you did star top of my head it, if i if i yeah okay, you did star it, so then he was doing sort of like <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is the shit that Lou Reed was doing in the mid-60s for the Brill Building knockoff thing. Yeah. Do the ostrich and yeah. stuff like that. So in 64, Sly Stewart came out with a single, I Just Learned How to Swim, backed with Scat Swim. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty amazing title, Scat Swim. It's awesome.
1: It's a, It's very imagistic. Yeah, it's a it's a turd floating in a pool. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the, it's, it's a it's, Caddyshack <laughs> reference. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, the, the, it's kind of, this is sounded like kind of like I my in my notes it says like it's kind of like surf rock kind of it's yeah kind of garage surf like Dwayne Eddy kind of thing he's going for yeah um, and it works
0: yeah again it's it's you good know, it's not as good as the Viscanes I think. Because now he's like floating out in the water on his own, and he's kind of flailing. But it's also, to find I who think he he's
1: trying to. He's trying a couple of different things. There's that other song, "Buttermilk," from this period. Right, right. That this is the
0: next year. This now we're yeah. in 1965. Well,
1: that one's kind of more like a Booker T. and the MGs kind of. It's like even
0: a, called "Buttermilk Part One." Don't friggin' <laughs> forget that, Joe. I guess
1: there's no kinda about it. It's and fun. then
0: the back, the back of the single was "Temptation Walk," right. which sounds similarly Booker T. and the MGs. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he did a, a song called "Dance All Night" with his brother Freddie, who was soon to be his bandmate. So he's at this point he's like twenty two, twenty three. These um, are these are pretty straight ahead skull, soul scorcher type material. Yeah. Like it, there's no pretensions of being anything other than what they are, but. Um, you know they're kind of like James Brown B sides, but that's not bad. That's not a bad thing to shoot, to shoot for.
1: Yeah, and he's uh, he's kind of evolving pretty quick. It's pretty. He's pretty I give pretty, it three
0: stars. Okay. <laughs> this period. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this okay. period this. Of, of two singles. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Okay. I uh, sure three.
1: Okay. Three. I swear I don't
0: have... eat that. come on, start an argument with me. Give it zero for Well, I have sake. I have
1: proper ratings for all the rest of everything. Okay I, okay. I didn't think we were rating these, but okay.
0: I rate everything. I even rated that stretch of conversation. <laughs> I gave it one and a half stars. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So in the mid sixties, after or during this part, or I should say end, Stone dj for uh KSOL, which is a San Francisco soul station. Uh, He began playing white acts like the Beatles and the Stones. And in 1964, when he was only 19, um, he was a record producer for Autumn Records and produced, uh, I should say, mainly Caucasian San Francisco area bands such as the Bo Brummels. And those records, awesome.
1: those, those records sound real good. He They're freaking great. He, he I mean, they a, kind of is, sound
0: like Dave Hassinger. This like is that, kind of kinda.
1: like what I was getting at with him being a polymath. He's really young, but he's already got every aspect of, you know, he hasn't really uh, written and like great music yet, but he's, you know, he, he's a, as a performer and producer. He's got his fingers in everything. He's got it. He <clears> does everything. <throat> yeah. Yeah.
0: And he even produced uh, The Great Society, which was Grace Slick's first band right before uh, Airplane. I was going to say Starship. Um, but most impressively, he... Produced uh, the original version of Gray Slicks, Some One to Love, as it was, as it was initially mm-hmm. called. Not quite as good as the airplanes version mm-hmm. became. But, and anyway, in 1966, here's where it begins. Okay. So,
1: and it's an interesting <clears throat> that, as you bring that up, they're kind of part of that scene, they're kind of part of the San Francisco scene. On a kind of different wing of it, but he's kind of there as that's all happening—the dead and the, and Jefferson Airplane. And but he's in—they're co- contemporaries, but they're playing more in like the East Bay. Right, they're playing outside, like on the periphery.
0: And right. then, what happened? But was, they
1: occasionally intersect with it, you know, like in those early days. But
0: they're two right now. They're two bands, mm-hmm. right? Right. So right now they're uh, Sly's band, Sly and the Stoners, which included Cynthia Robinson on trumpet. She will come up during uh, a lot during this but she's uh the trumpet player and the one who sings and Dance to the music. Oh, you squares. Um I mean so distinctive that voice. Um and she is really the one mainstay in Sly's life. Incredibly she goes pa- incredibly on the patient whole person whole bumpy fucking ride. She's there at at all points and even bears one of his kids so in any in any case sly and the stoners was sly and cynthia and then his brother freddie had a band called freddie and the stone souls with greg erico and jerry martini greg erico played drums jerry martini was a saxophonist by the way i I was
1: yesterday years old when i realized it's pronounced greg erico
0: is it you know what's funny I always called it a Rico. And the last few days, you've been pronouncing it Erico. So I just switched. Well, as I said, I was yesterday. Years because old. Joe is a Mensa. And I didn't even argue the fact that he was correct. But it turns out Mensas can be incorrect. All right. You heard it here first. So um, every time
1: you get something wrong, you know, it's like, why are you walking around with that dollhouse on your head, Mensa?
0: You, know, <laughs> yeah. you got to hear it every time. It's a curse. All right. So one night, The two bands were hanging out in in Sly's kitchen, or Sly's parents' kitchen. And they decided to combine the bands together, as well as adding Larry Graham on bass. Larry Graham, P.S., always the outsider. Working the Bay Area in 1967, the group made a mark. In 1968, Rose Stone joined the band, and they became Sly and the Family Stone Now we're off and running. Classic lineup formed. Here we are. January 1967, they released their first single, I Ain't Got Nobody, for real, backed with I Can't Turn You Loose, which is a cover. To me, the thing that leaps out of the fucking speakers the second this starts, and by the way, this is a pre-album single. It's really just kind of a bonus track, but you'll find it on discograffiti.com. Gregorico is on fire. Yeah. I mean, his drum playing is insane. Well, the rhythm section in general, um, it's,
1: they add a ton of, you know, it's a lot of firepower there. Those two guys, Larry Graham and Gregorico, um, you know, classic, legendary, monstrous rhythm section. But Joe,
0: right out of the band, I mean, sorry, right out of the gate the band is completely and fully formed. I yeah. mean, there's no tweaks to be made, basically.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what, uh, my, what my reaction to it was. It's like, okay, this sounds like what they were. They came, you know, they, there's no, like, this isn't like a prototypical version of it. This is the actual, they kind of, they're doing it, Right out of the gate, it yeah. sound exactly like Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah, this it is doesn't a, sound like an early version of Sly. And the no, Stone. it
0: doesn't. There's no nascent Sly. Yeah, yeah, there's nascent Sly solo. There's no nascent Family Stone. So, anyway, from June to September '67, uh, over the summer of love, Sly and the Family Stone recorded live. Uh, uh, sorry, recorded live in the studio. Um, no overdubbing apparently, or that might be mythological. Who the hell knows? But the idea was a live performance, and. Actually, you know, worthy of note, Clive Davis, who's, you know, a legend in the music industry, so you don't just ignore the dude, uh, he wound up pressuring Sly to go in a more pop direction. And so uh, after the recording of this record, which is called A Whole New Thing... And it was a whole new thing. They never followed up or developed this stole, this uh, style of soul.
1: Yeah, I yeah, I well, yeah, I guess so. They kind of got back to it. They not really exactly like this. This was kind of like uh, there's stuff on it that's almost like um, like guitar pop, like garage psych kind of pop. Like the, this is really the uh, when they're doing the kaleidoscopic vision sort of thing this is kind of the most
0: like that i think what's exciting about the record is number one during this time there was no fully integrated band like this you know multiracial, multi you know cross-sexual this had never been done before and to write their own material and then on this record to be like like a bag filled with mexican jumping beans i mean so much you know it was bursting at the seams basically yeah, right, because you have,
1: you know, Sly with a strong set of songs, and the band is just incendiary. The classic lineup, I mean, all the lineups, Sly always played with great musicians, and these guys who were like the kings of funk, they always attract the best of the best, because people want to go play with them. Yeah. Um, but this particular band had not just great musicians, but the combination Greg Gregorico is kind of like um, he's he's a great funk drummer and he's played those classic breakbeats but he has a heavy kind of sound like almost like John Bonham or something yeah 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 brings, it, it's a, it feels like mallets it really does it's a it's a kind of a thunderous and kind of like very super energetic kind of sound yeah um, and, and how and
0: how it works for for this record specifically is because you know there's less of a pop vibe yeah. on this record than there is on Stand or Dance to the Music
1: I don't mean this as a slight on Gregorico at all who is a ten out of ten Amazing drummer. He has a little. He has some rough edges to him. He has kind of a little bit of sloppy, garagey stuff to him. That, that I a, like that, he, I, that. You know. Listen for Later, me. Later, they play with Andy Newmark, who is a very. Who's you know Andy Newmark never plays a note or a fill that isn't perfect. You know, but Gregory Gregory Gregor- He's a basher. Could, he he's could, a basher.
0: He could be my favorite drummer of all time. Yeah, he's amazing. He very. I, well I love this about his style. He's Fucking amazing. Him being but, not and,
1: him. Not, him being more spirited and kind of like. Rough around the edges, as opposed to being ultra slick or something it gives them a garage kind of feel at times. Yeah, it gives them almost so like we're, we're. I don't ba- want to say punk rock, but we're, we're you
0: know. barely into the actual songs here, so mm-hmm. we'll we'll move ahead from from Rico because we haven't even talked about Sly songs, which are which are amazing. This record is incredible. It's also Joe very generous. Yeah, I mean he gives a lot of solos out to yeah. uh, all the band right um you know it is a little bit front loaded the record uh, the first side is unbelievably good and then it kind of downshifts into capable but unthrilling soul music but uh regardless of the songwriting the performances are ridiculously spirited and the back and forth is fun as hell yeah,
1: they, they it comes roaring out of the gate
0: yeah underdog is great uh if this room could talk with uh the Larry Graham solo showcase is fucking amazing. Run, run, run! Really peppy psych uh, psych pop. That's amazing. Yeah, that one's a real gem. I, yeah, that's that could be my favorite on the record. I'm a sucker for that kind of shit.
1: So, if this room can talk, is kind of like uh, it's it's sort of like a precursor to Everyday People to me. Um, it has that yeah. kind of bouncy kind of feel to it. Um, these songs all have you know those the, like uh, the, the, all the parts they're playing are great. Like it, they're it's they're really well rehearsed and well arranged. So like, you know, Turn Me Loose, the, the, the groove on that is just so tight. It's so like, and then it like, they could take it to a place where it almost falls off the rails, like great chemistry and playing on this record. Um, it, it sounds kind of like what it is, which is they just had these songs very well rehearsed. These are probably the songs that were in their live set at the time. They went in and just knocked it out in the studio.
0: You know, this is a dude who was constantly creative, constantly coming up with new stuff. And yet through the 70s, you look... Not only through the 70s, through the 80s, when he appeared on Letterman. He's doing old shit. Yeah. He could be doing new shit and have it be amazing, but he keeps giving in to that routine. Well, I
1: think a lot of that, though, by the time the, the late 70s and the 80s roll around, it's like, that's all people really want right. to right. hear. People don't want to hear new stuff. and it's different than the early phase in his career when he was kind of bursting with ideas and he
0: felt like pressured to do a certain kind of thing.
1: I, I think the, 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 Listen, the phase I'm, of his I'm gonna career- ar-
0: I'm going to argue that the producers did not make him do old stuff, that he just thought that that's what they wanted to do. Yeah, I'm sure
1: that's what he thought. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's, he- uh, He's, at, later in his career. He's got financial troubles. He's got to he's got to put the butts in the seats. He's got to yeah you know, yeah. yeah. Got, I'll tell you, know.
0: you know, if you want like a he's not a, dumb. <laughs> you know, yeah, if you <laughs> want like a fast track to financial troubles, pick up a crack habit. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I give this record four stars.
1: I gave it same. I gave it four.
0: Yeah, it's great. So moving on to 1968, we have Dance to the Music, which is a Clive Davis assisted reaction to a whole new thing. So. During the recording, the band didn't even think highly of it. So, uh, you know, it really is directly attributable to Clive and his request to slide to go in a more pop-friendly direction that it exists. Yeah, this
1: record's not as fun. It does have, you know, uh, it develops a formula. Yeah, it has the it has the it got the big hit they wanted, um, and then
0: uh, you and know. there's not much else. <clears throat> there's really not much else to me. This the best is- thing
1: I can say about this record, the, 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 the bright side of this one is that there's still great playing on it. So there, some of the material is not really that amazing, but there are mo- magical moments in it because the players are so good. You know, they, they get, an, an, they get a hold of a good groove and it's like, I kind of appreciate it more on that level, like oh, I like Greg's drums on this, or like this yeah, oh, like, yeah, one yeah. has a yeah. sick guitar lick, in it. you know, like it's yeah. more.
0: And also, also the peace, love, and to- togetherness thing is coming together. Um, they're almost know, not the really.
1: They could sort of like just pick up instruments and randomly play a jam, and it's going to pretty much sound good. I mean, yeah, everything. It, yeah, that's yeah. the thing is, there's kind of a. And plus, you get
0: all of them Sly, ready. Uh, Rose uh, Larry jumping in on vocal. Yeah, there's a right high then.
1: floor to their music. It never goes into like fully suck because they yeah, all yeah. play their
0: asses off at all times Yeah so. yeah so obviously the formula uh, not only worked in selling records um, but it influenced the entire music industry. I, I mean it's funny because to me I'm just gonna say right up front I give it, I think this is the, the worst album he ever did and I give it two stars.
1: I, I liked it better than that. I gave it three, and it is, just, it, it, it is definitely,
0: um, there's not a ton of great material on it. There's, a few there's two I songs. Like. There's two songs. So there's Dance to the Music, which is great, but now it's an anthem to be played at Bar Mitzvahs, and I Ain't Got Nobody for Real, which is great, but inferior to the original 1967 single. Right, yeah. The medley's a piece of shit, and Sly had to have known
1: it. I, I kind of like the tune "Color Me True." That one kind of has a good kind of like strut to it, sort of. But um, yeah, they, they're <laughs> kind of every song. You get the sense that they're trying to get like a dance party anthem, you know, going. And um, it they hit on one of them, and um, it, it you know the, I guess the formula sort of worked. And then it
0: worked for them. It, I mean, look at what happened to the music. And I mean, you have Norman Whitfield at mm. Motown. We'll get further into it later on mm. as it really develops around Riot. But you have Norman Whitfield going on. You have uh, the Jackson 5. Everyone's moving in that direction, and it's because of Sly. All right, so moving on to later in 1968, we're on Life. So unlike Dance to the Music, Life was not a hit. So a lot of the songs on the album, including Milady, Fun, Love City, and Life itself became like definite staples in their live act. Uh, But it's kind of a middle ground between... Uh, the crazy, explosive energy of a whole new thing, and the more commercially driven dance to the music.
1: Yeah, I found this one to be kind of in the same vein as dance to the music. Uh, maybe a little bit. I think t- it's better. It's better. I think the songs are a little stronger. Um, but I, it seems like it has the same kind of goals. It's kind of going for like you know the peppy kind of party stuff. Yeah, um, but the problem
0: for me, right out of the gate, it shits the bed. You've got dynamite, which blows. Chicken Blows and Plastic Gym Blows. These are, this is not a good uh, yeah, the intro. Se-
1: the sequencing is weird. Uh, it
0: sucks. Yeah. But there's, there's great songs on the record. Fun. Yeah. That's really good. It's basically Stand Light, um, but it's the first good track and it comes four songs into the, the week beginning to record. Into My Own Thing is awesome with a sick fucking intro. Definitely Proto Parliament. Mm-hmm. Harmony. Uh, more 60s message funk, and then Life, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, Circus celebration of living woke and self-empowered. Love City and Milady, those are those, that's a really that's good one. A lot, yeah. yeah. So you know, Love City, you know what that breakbeat was
1: was used on, right? What? The sample uh, "Sissy Neck" by Beck. Oh, sweet. He sam- sweet! Samples that beat.
0: Love City's great. It's a track that pops up a lot uh, on live stuff, especially like around sixty-eight. There's a lot of stuff
1: with it. Yeah, that's a cool song. That is so. Most of this record, I knew. Well, the, you know, the, the, the songs that are I had when I was maybe like I don't know freshman year in college or something. I feel like I got a Sly in the Family Stone comp that was like a greatest hits that was probably put out like in the eighties. And it had the, the three songs, it had fun life and my lady were mm-hmm. all, I think all on that compilation. And I, those still seem that and love city seem like the, the, the tunes that I'm still kind of responding to. Um, from this the, there's the the there's a one really cringy song Jane is a groupie yeah that's that not is good super, and that isn't that the last song that's not I think cool. it's the last song yeah it's not, it's yeah but
0: at that time it was cool it's just <laughs> fucked up it's like I think
1: it's what the kids call cringe AF but yeah then cringe yeah. has no eon it's the like band.
0: changing the mrs. Butterworth bottle yeah All right, so anyway, now we're into 1969, and now we're into juicy motherfucking territory, Joe, because May 1969, the transitional stuff is over, and the Sly and the Family Stone, at least for the moment, is a very, very complete entity. Stand first of all, sold over three million copies altogether. It's one of the most successful albums of the 60s. Um, There is something right out of the gate you have to accept about it there's some um, i mean some of the greatest songs of all time and i'm talking six great songs and then you have to accept two songs that are that are kind of unnecessary but not objectionable would you agree with that joe yeah well i like this album a lot um it's a i you know definitely a
1: classic a uh, iconic funk album um this is they're probably their where they're most successful right this is like their most commercially successful album yeah
0: well uh, i think riot was actually but the, um not quite sure to be quite this is crazy. kind of the
1: most hit packed album
0: yeah um and uh
1: this to me they're getting back to where they were on a whole new thing where it's like i think i it seems like the constraints are kind of off it seems like it gives more freedom I mean, maybe because he's had the hit song, you know. Um, but all
0: the best stuff is reined in,
1: right? But um, I mean, this is chock full of. Uh, there's a you know, there's at least five or six really
0: iconic, you know. Um, all the all the best songs share the sense of like nursery rhyme homilies that are right. uh, being used. Uh, that all the lyrics, I mean, every line is a quotable event. And but. Spring, but also
1: some fierce funk licks and shit on this. There's oh, like, yeah. there
0: some, like, they're the,
1: you know, like that outro for St- and stand, and like, uh, but
0: the outro, you know, about the outro on stand that was kind of improvised or something. Right? So the band wasn't in the studio, so uh-huh. it's all uh, like uh, that end piece, uh-huh. which is it's legendary, a is a different band. It's like session uh-huh. players, yeah, <laughs> oh, is wow. that funny? That yeah, is, yeah. <clears throat> um, the, let's just say right out of the gate that, uh, Right out of the gate we have sex machine which is like 15 minutes that could have been utilized with great other songs <laughs> right. and don't call me n word whitey that one too is more of a 60s event yeah I like is
1: you know musically it's not really that interesting
0: no it's not yeah it's not it's more of a a, a yeah um, but this record is the pinnacle of the uplifted sloganeering phase of the band right out of the gate, We've got Stand. This is feeling totally different, Josefina, assured and hitting its lyrical and musical targets with ease. And then the coda that you talked about, that 49-second yeah. piece, is just like, seemingly tossed off, but that in itself could have been a 10-minute song.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Stan, what a well-written song across the board. I mean, the melody, chord changes, lyrics. I mean, it's, you know, top rate. And then I think top the, rate.
0: the best song of Sly's career in this early phase is easily I Want to Take You Higher. Well, I mean, the, the groove. It's just insane. It's off the charts. Somebody still,
1: uh, to this day, like, blasts out of the speakers. It, it yeah, kicks in that guitar lick, like, right? Like, that's one of the sickest intros. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Bare there>. <laughs> it's just it's it kicks amazing. mega ass yeah it's it's one of my favorite songs of all time so somebody's watching you is where uh, joe i'm curious if you agree with me on this this is where like the paranoia seeds were sown so it's candy coated in terms of how the music is and how the lyrics are it's kind you know, of very a, nursery rhymey it's kind of a quirky like kind of, kind of a quirky little funk track like. it's, i think it's watered down riot if you really listen to it so you know, ever stop to think about a downfall? Yeah, happens at the end of every line. Yeah, that's basically,
1: and it's kind of how my it's, career is going to go. It's out of character. I mean. It's a, it's an interesting curveball with the rest of the record, which is yeah. kind of this very up with people kind of. Uh, it's interesting that it.
0: yeah, it's like the ultimate up '60s vibe. Yeah, but here's like an into, here's a foreshadowing. Yeah, because the nicer the nice, the higher the price. This is what you pay for what you need. Yeah, that's a lyric from the fucking song. Yeah. That's it. He yeah, again, planted it's, the truth. He's right a pretty in his, interesting lyricist. Yeah, I think, yeah.
1: The, I mean, like uh, stand has some great lines. in it. you know, stand, you've been sitting way too long. There's a yeah. permanent crease in your right and wrong. It's it's.
0: it's uh, these are great lyrics. Yeah, he's an absolute poet, as he refers to himself on Riot. Sing a simple song, uh, Everyday People, which we don't even need to go. I mean, that's. Uh, I mean, talk about how many commercials was was that in? For One whatever. of the
1: incredible things about Everyday People is that the chord never changes. It's just oh, yeah. the oh, same yeah, yeah, yeah. bass yeah. notes throughout. The, it never moves off that pedal he tone. He could probably
0: write that shit in his sleep because I know at that time he was really interested. But it doesn't in seem like
1: it. It doesn't seem like it. It right. doesn't seem static at all. You know. It, like, it, no, it doesn't. Because all the vocal parts that come in just send chills up your spines. They're so amazing. The way they're sang and the, the arrangement of the vocals and the backup vocals... It doesn't need chord changes. And
0: then you can make it if you try. I mean, what a way to end the record. So um, this is a great album. You know what? Again,
1: that's another one where you can make it if you try. The vocal arrangement, the way everybody sings on that, and the way all their voices, it's just
0: moi. So just moving on to, uh, I. by the way, I give it five stars unquestionably. I gave it four and a half only because of the, uh, I know, the kind of I, fillery
1: I, ones. But you can definitely make a case for five. It's, I, it's I, classic. But
0: here's the thing. It's kind of like the way that I feel about Saucerful of Secrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its
1: parts. Yeah, it's it's very, it, you
0: know. So to me, it's a five-star record. I'm not going to quibble with Re- a five. It's amazing. Regardless of the, I'm mm-hmm. not trying to convince you otherwise, but yeah. I just, I thought about it for days And then I went with the five. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, August 1969, uh, August 17th, 1969, uh, Sly and the Family Stone set went down during the early morning hours, um, and their performance was, uh, this is saying quite a lot. We're talking about uh, Woodstock. Yeah, Woodstock. It's Mm -hmm. probably the best of the entire festival. Uh, The myth is the actual reality in this very rare case. So... Joe, he was so on fucking fire. It was three in the morning, and he had hundreds of thousands of hippies in the palm of his hand. Is this the height of Sly Stone's life and career?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's certainly an amazing performance. It's too bad there isn't more footage of the Sly Band at this crazy high peak. Um, there's a lot more stuff that you can find of them later. But but uh, the
0: weird thing to me is okay, and there's like it's like a double-edged sword to me. Is I saw Summer of Soul, great performance. But I was struck by how similar it was to the Woodstock performance. Yeah. And mean, that was their
1: set. That's what they did.
0: I know. But it made me feel like because there was no other footage, it made me feel like the feeling was more has um, inside of it.
1: Yeah. But, you know, you, that's you got to remember at the time, there's no YouTube. There's no concert films or things. So anybody right. that's seeing it is experiencing that for the first for time. For the first time. So to be able to to be able to do it night after night. But and to not, have in, it, not in
0: 1974. <laughs> Yeah, true. And it's a little bit old.
1: Yeah, but at this, at that time, yeah, you know when they're 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 able to get it to that crazy high level at every show, you know, it's like that. That's what they, you know, that's kind of what you would expect them to do. You know? So
0: then they're still on their pinnacle. It's August sixty nine. Hot fun in the summertime comes mm-hmm. out, Joe yeah. Kennedy. And uh, that yeah. was just uh, that went to number two and that's just a great song. Yeah, it's great. I mean, uh I give it five fucking stars, Joe.
1: Sure. As a single, that's an easy five star song. Easy, easy. It it's just got that breezy groove to it. It's like a, the, the the little chord lick is amazing. You know, it's it's uh everybody sings great. Again, amazing vocal arrangements, you know. And, and then it's kinda I ain't got no if you don't like that song, you know, I don't know what to really tell you.
0: We kinda <laughs> groove in toward the end of the year then. Now it's Uh, December 69 we got Altamont going down unrelated to Sly uh, but that vibe is in the air and in December 69 the very first you know truly like taking a left turn in their direction uh, this is where it occurs so thank you for letting me be myself again uh, backed with Everybody is a Star which is a ridiculously great single that marks the beginning of the Family Stone's second era during which the music took on a significantly darker, more funk-based vibe, more like a junky bummer music.
1: I get, yeah, sure. This is kind of a transitional phase to that. I mean, a classic single to amazing songs. Um, I mean, you've, I, most of our listeners probably know these. These are very iconic singles. The, the, you know, thank you. is, is kind of like in that in that uh, I want to take you higher kind of space where it's just the, the most fierce groove. Um, you know, with a with a nice catchy hook over it, but the 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 quality of the funk is just you know. Th- there's nobody else that can match. It's it. It's an at outstanding
0: the time. song, and and you know, obviously, Larry Graham. Uh, this is one of those. Uh, you know, what was the moment that invented uh, punk? But this is the moment that in that invented the slap yeah, bass. Yeah, it's correct? got the
1: great slap lick. You know, you know, classic. Uh, you know, it's. I just think you found your second
0: career, motherfucker. Scat slap singing, yes, <laughs> um, but yeah, the bass playing's great. Apparently, uh, it's got the
1: slamming Gregorico dru- it's that the rhythm section really shines in that one. Uh, there you know they that was this was kind of their last hurrah, that rhythm section,
0: apparently, just as a side note, Larry Graham invented this style because he was in a band that didn't have a drummer, mm-hmm. so wanted a percussive effect, right. Um, yeah, this was uh, this was a turning point because after this song, after this single, things started to change in terms of um, where they went. So, yeah, they
1: started to get less band-oriented. It started to be less like, we are the six people that play on this or whoever. But not anyone. initially. Yeah. I
0: don't know. If it, so it, but initially, it started.
1: This is the, kind of the apex th- of so where they So Thank really You was
0: intended to be part of an album with Everybody's a Star and Hot Fun in the, in the Summertime. And there was an interview he did at the time where Sly described the album as that he was making as the most optimistic of all. And it was reportedly titled... The incredible and unpredictable Sly in the Family Stone. <laughs> Needless to say, the LP was never finished or possibly that's never part worked of on to start that's with. That's part of the unpredictability. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like uh, Sid Barrett's Have You Got It Yet? Uh, and the three tracks instead were folded into the band's 1970 Greatest Hits LP, which is important because that's the record company saying we give up on you.
1: Yeah, that's what that kind of meant at the time when they were, it was like a contractual fulfillment. Uh, but it was thing. a
0: huge seller. That album sold a trillion in copies, literally a trillion. It's the biggest selling album. It's quite everybody on earth bought four copies. <laughs> <thousand. laughs> uh, so I know if it, to get a trillion,
1: yeah, every every people on earth bought like a thousand copies or something. Yeah,
0: exactly, <laughs> something like so, that. Thank you, and everybody is a star with the final Family Stone recordings issued in the sixties. And they marked the beginning of a 23-month period of radio silence from the band, which would finally end in 1971 with Family Affair. The demand for new music was deafening. Sly greeted this fever pitch with silence, total silence. Something went wrong here, Joe. Something went terribly wrong here. Where did things begin to change? So their manager, David Kopralik, thought the turning point was a Fillmore e-show where Sly didn't allow any individual solos.
1: That seems like a weird thing for it to be a turning point.
0: Well, that dude, you know what happened to that dude eventually? Let's just go to the end of his life. Yeah. he, He had a nervous breakdown, tried to commit suicide three times, moved to Hawaii, left the record industry. Thanks, to Sly.
1: Yeah, that's how he he exits the slide. That's stage. how he exits. Okay, so he gave it the he gave it the college try.
0: For that's the perspective of a guy who did those things. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> the, then there were the drugs, Joe. The drugs. So every that seems like
1: the more likely culprit.
0: Let's talk about the drugs, okay? But what do this you is, think it
1: was that caused the meltdown of Sly and the Family Stone? I think it was drugs, or that one show where they didn't get
0: to solo? It had to have been the non-solo <laughs> show. Okay, so every other band on the planet is smoking tons of weed, is experimenting with psychedelics, and is possibly dabbling in cocaine and heroin. Nobody is doing PCP. Nobody. Nobody wants to.
1: Well, one, but guys.
0: The only person who's doing PCP is somebody who, who accidentally bought a bag of some other drug that was laced with PCP. So Sly liked PCP. And the introduction of that on the scene, plus tons of downer pills, he would buy them by the 500 and Coke definitely did not help matters. So
1: it started adding some, uh, let's say, uh, start adding some randomness to the equation.
0: Yeah, then everything kind of got really out of hand. But then to make matters even more insidious and creepy, Sly was the one who doled out the lines. Other people weren't allowed to have drugs in the band. He sat behind, I mean this sounds like a fucking movie, but he sat behind a desk in a library, like a darkly lit library apparently, and served his people. So when Sly closed up and went upstairs, the shop was closed. It's like a Vito
1: Vito Corleone kind of thing.
0: It's it's absolutely crazy. So there was uh, a guy on the scenes that basically said that nobody was allowed to have their own blow. So that was
1: how you like enforce that exactly.
0: But I mean, so what he, he kind of set up his house like a casino, no clocks allowed so that he ruined the sense of time, um, as he alluded to in his songs over and over again. He kind of decimated and recreated time in his image um, and had all these people liquidate their lives in the Bay Area and then come down to a scene in L.A. that they thought was going to be the incredible and wild and unpredictable world of Sly and the Family Stone, and it was like this dark, gangster-ridden drug den. Uh, It was completely insane. So then there were the thugs, the drugs and the thugs. So this new guy on the scene... Not enough hugs. No, no, we need more hugs. Thugs, (laughs) drugs, and hugs. Uh, So this guy named... Hamp Bubba Banks entered the scene around this time as Sly's right-hand man and basically main person, like manager. He got the bedroom next to Sly at their Bel Air house after forcibly taking it from Jerry Martini, who had sold his house after being convinced from Sly that this was the way to go. Um, Bubba acted as the door guard if you wanted to talk to Sly.
1: So this was also the house that uh, it was in Bel Air, right? So they, 783 is, yeah. Bel Air Road. So this Road. was John
0: Phillips and Michelle Phillips had been previously living there. And, and they, Jerry Martini, the saxophonist, thinks that it was the move from San Francisco to 783 Bel Air Road in the fall of 69 that made the band's tra- trajectory go directly downward.
1: And so he also built a... I guess John Phillips had built a studio in there.
0: So it was built initially for... Jeanette McDonald, the actress, and then in 65, she died. Uh, John and Michelle bought it in 67. outfitted it with this recording studio that was in the attic. And like young Frankenstein, you had to access it through a bookcase. You to um, pull out
1: like a certain book and then the-
0: put the candle back the bookers. <laughs> <laughs> So Sly rented the place from John for 12 grand a month. And putting 25 grand in an escrow account every few months, uh, so he could record an album there. So check this out: John fucking Phillips winds up inadvertently leaving behind his kid's birth certificates and an ounce of cocaine. So that inadvertently set the mood.
1: Well, they're probably together in like the same box.
0: Yeah, exactly. Those two you go do together. You do that before
1: you, moves and you, you move somewhere and you're like, oh, this box that had like our steak knives. I don't know what happened like to Like toward
0: the end of moving <laughs> when you stop categorizing <laughs> things. <laughs> so Jerry Martini said the house was super, was very gangsterish, dangerous. The vibes were very dark at that point. There was a cloud flying over the place. There was a cloud flying over Sly from the time he moved down to Los Angeles. To what about um To this day, same cloud, end right. quote. I became a coke addict, drug addict, vegetable, sitting around waiting for my line like the rest of the assholes. That's Jerry Martini's words precisely. And then uh, John and Michelle had those peacocks. They had peacocks (laughs) would be walking on the roof that would be jumping (laughs) on unsuspecting visitors. For those of
1: you who don't know, peacocks are assholes. They They will attack you.
0: And just to also let you know, I scaled the wall at 783 Bel Air Road several years ago to attempt to look down into... Uh, this legendary rock palace, and it was uh, pretty stunning, pretty stunning. I wish I'd uh, jumped off the wall and gone in, but uh, basically, you know. And the cherry on top of this cake. Let's talk about Gun for a second. Gun mm-hmm. was Sly's pit bull. Oh man! And he was supposedly trained to kill. Sly also had a baboon, but Gun killed the baboon and then fucked it. Bad, bad dog. (laughs) Yeah, bad dog. Sly loved to liven up recording sessions by throwing gun in the mix and watching everyone run for for dear life. Uh,
1: I wish this story had a better outcome. (laughs) Right, right. So
0: obviously, based on this vibe, relationships within the band were falling apart. In particular, between the Stone Brothers and Larry Graham.
1: They're also recording in there at the same time, a lot. So he's got his. He's. They're doing some work at the record plant, I guess. On.
0: They they would do tons of drugs and then record for ever days. Well, it
1: seems like what went on at the house from from like researching all that stuff for the purposes of this episode. He's recording some of the stuff from that Stone Flower era that's yeah. going on at the house, and then he's making some of. Uh, He's doing some of what would eventually be the next album. He's doing some
0: pretty astounding production stuff. It seems totally like it's kind of like that.
1: a whoever happens to be around. If you want to come play on stuff, you can come play. It doesn't seem like it's like so much like The Family Stone is the house band there, really. It seems like whoever feels like dropping by. The first production was it Joe It seems Hicks. like come by, do some drugs, go up in the studio, we'll make some stuff. Sure. It's not being properly archived. There are just like tapes laying around and nobody knows, nobody knows who Nobody knows who played on There's what. There's probably to this day... God knows how many dozens of hundreds of hours of sessions. from from A
0: digital dump from that time would just be such a beautiful earful.
1: Yeah, so it seems like they're working on stuff almost kind of randomly. Yeah,
0: but as far as releases go, the very first one from Stoneflower Productions was Joe Hicks in September 69. You have I'm Going Home on the first side and Home Sweet Home. I give this four stars. Um, that was uh, kind of an intro for his production work. Did you like that song?
1: Yeah, that's kind of the those, especially the tune, um, the home sweet home tune is kind of like a James Brown style funk. Um, yeah, I mean it's the same. It's, it's the, the you know very uh, gritty funk playing on that cool tune.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then around this time, Gregorico was the first one to quit. So the only place he can uh, just as a side note that he can really hear his drumming on Riot is The very last track, thank you for talking to me, Africa, which was the only real group performance. So, Ariko was replaced by a guy named Jerry Gibson, who was the banana splits drummer and apparently played with mallets. Yeah,
1: short lived replacements that
0: was short lived. Um, but he was bec- Stone was becoming really erratic around this time. <clears throat> um, Urico was gone. Then, these cheap tinny drum machines enter the picture and point the way toward Riot in late '69, Africa was an outtake, it was an original version of Africa Talks to You that seems to be the first evidence of the new style.
1: Yeah, he's, the, the drum machine stuff's pretty interesting. It's a Maestro Rhythm King Mark II, um, which um, I had that box in my household when I was a little kid. My dad has one, I think still owns it. And, that's, um,
0: and that sound still sounds wonderful. Yeah, well, the it's primitive the, as hell, but amazing.
1: Yeah, so there's kind of like a row of buttons, and there's maybe like twenty, twenty-five different beats you can play on it, and the the, the sounds themselves are these kind of like. Uh, the hi-hats have a very specific kind of hiss to them. They're just kind of a white noise hiss, like a tss, tss. It's
0: kind of the, the rhythm thing. hi hat. And, and, and almost like a bubbling. Well, the, yeah, like the other bubbling. the
1: other sounds like the the other like toms and congas or whatever, all have this kind of rubbery kind of uh sound. They have to them. this
0: weird definition that yeah, uh, some, has been recreated. It
1: sounds like kind of rubbery to me. It's this kind of like, you know, um like it's the bouncy bubbling. It's bubbly the kind ultimate for funk. I mean it seems well, like the, the, the ultimate thing that's for interesting funk. is the beats that are on this machine And the ones that Sly uses Are usually not syncopated Or funky in their own right They're usually just like Very vanilla 4-4 Kind of straightforward You only can play the beats That come with the thing You know that you can't program it Yeah Um, So But it's what's laid on top of it It goes to show you that Funk isn't necessarily Built around The drums being syncopated You can have the the drums Playing something kind of Very straightforward Four on the floor Very standard 2-4-4-4 Kind of you know, eighth note beats, nothing's too fancy, but it's the other stuff being on top of it that's syncopated. Yeah. And yeah, the, yeah. that has its own kind of funk to it. It's everything else on it has this foundation of this like very
0: yeah, we're, static weird we're, we're, drum thing. We're starting to go in a whole other direction because with, with Little Sister, which is his uh which is Vayetta's group, his his sister, uh You're the one comes out in January nineteen seventy. That is the very first release with this new drum machine sound. It wasn't with his band. He wasn't really recording with his band right now. Uh, Then Little Sister in November 1970 released Stanga. Great tune. Amazing. And then on the B-side, Somebody's Watching You, which is a redone, stripped-down, spectral, spooky-as-fuck version of Somebody's Watching You from Stand. Uh, that all that stuff I give five stars.
1: Sure, I love all those. The, the, it's there's, amazing. Those proto. Well, we're kind of foreshadowing to the slu- To there's a riot going on. Spoiler alert!
0: That album uh, is coming up. But um, there. I want to quote a lyric that Sly wrote for Stanga. Sometime or another, gonna feel the pain. Sometime or another, you gotta see the rain. Sometime or another, you're gonna be stung. Sometime or another, you might see a brother hung. Now we're starting to get into riot type paranoia territory. Yeah, this isn't different folks. Different strokes this is for a different whole, folks. Yeah. yeah, exactly. This is not you can make it if you try. It's you cannot make it. Why would you try? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. True. it's got its stand Sheen flayed right off to expose the paranoid studs under the sixties gloss. And no, I'm not even reading from my notes. And uh, you
1: can see this the gradual transition of what you know what became the riot era kind of happening things, yeah, things not, are getting dark with the drugs there is kind yeah. of a, there's a crazy house atmosphere going on where uh, the, where the records re- are being made there's other transitional experimental things he's doing with other artists that kind of inform jo- the later record you know inform riot joe
0: hicks is the next one mm-hmm. so life and death and gna that's in december 70 right. great song Five Stars. If it's super it fe- cool. Noticeably, if feels, very, uh, he- if it feels
1: good, it's all right, right? It has the classic, uh, hedonism of the yeah, next, it's of the next like, phase.
0: It sums up riot before riot even comes out, and then yeah. you have a group. There's called- a
1: difference between optimism and hedonism, you know, there, yeah, yeah, it's a fine line kind of, but they're kind of tilting into that direction,
0: yeah. But know? once you cross that line, it becomes the antithetical to the first, yeah. Um, So six, the number six with IX, they released a song that I believe Sly wrote, I'm Just Like You. And on on the B-side, Dynamite, I give that four stars. That was in December 70. Kind of a commercial twist on the new drum machine sound.
1: Yeah, well, these are all um, these almost function as like Riot going on B-sides because it seems like they're done from the same sessions, the same kind of place and time. Um, and, you know, Riot is a very specific place and time kind of record,
0: and these exist in that same world. However, right around the corner, things started to get really fucked up uh, in, a, in a way that is completely unpredictable and uh, completely out of bounds. Uh, we are going to wrap up on this episode and uh, on our next episode of Sly and the Family Stone Uh, You'll see what happens in 1970 when Sly completely flies off the rails.
1: Check us out on Discograffiti.com. There will be some bonus material and playlists for this episode. And definitely come back and revisit us uh, for part two of Sly and the Family Stone.